How you doing, Rock family? Pastor Miles here. I miss you guys so much, and I can't wait to be back next week where I'm going to be starting a series called Mind Your Business. You ever wonder why you pray and go to church and read your Bible, yet your thoughts are still messed up? So I'm going to be talking about how to renew your mind and get your thoughts to be consistent with the Word of God. Uh, I also want to introduce my buddy, uh, Mark DeMoss, who's going to be preached today. We have known each other for 30-something years, 34 years, and he is a great brother. He is going to break the word down today. God is doing an amazing thing in his life to unite the church. So I want you to stand to your feet and give a great, enthusiastic, rock church welcome to Pastor Mark DeMoss. Amen. Amen. Oh, you can be seated. He's being too nice. Good to see you. It's true. It's so great, honestly, to be here at The Rock. I remember when this facility was being built, Miles walked me through it. So great again to worship finally with you on a Sunday morning. As Miles said, we go back 32 years prior to my wedding with my wife. We've shared so many memories uh, over that time. And, uh, and as you know, Miles is a great brother, right? We've ridden horses on the beach, right? Way back in the day, we rode horse. We put up with bugs. I don't know if you know, but Miles does not like to go camping. He does not like bugs. And we put up with bugs. We put up kids in those camps. Uh, we have raised our own kids. We're now raising in our grandparents, right? We're a little older, a little grayer, a little wiser after 30-something. At least in my case, that's the way it is. But uh, anyway, by God's grace, we're still here trying to do our best under his grace to serve the Lord. Amen. Just like all of us, right? Sinners saved by grace. And I'm here before you today. I always like to make sure that everybody knows, hey, I am no different than anybody else, a sinner. In fact, I think of myself like Paul, chief among sinners. And yet God somehow uses us in spite of ourselves, amen. Get up every day. I know we're saved once and forever, but I've also found that we're being saved every day as we continue to turn our lives over and turn away from sin and to walk with God. You know, in 2016, in a CNN opinion piece, uh, Mel Robbins wrote a column about disruptors, disruptors. And she said that disruptors are those who create new ways of doing things, that open new markets, doors, and possibilities. Disruptors don't innovate from within systems, rather they turn systems upside down to affect systemic change. They break current molds, they change our way of thinking about those molds, and ultimately hand us the new rules for how things will work in the future. These disruptors form disruptive companies, such as Uber, right? Think about it. Uber disrupted the way we transport ourselves, the way we travel in cities, right? Completely changed the game. Uh, and, uh, Facebook has done the same thing. Mark Zuckerberg in 2005 completely changed the internet. Prior to 2005, there was no such thing called social media. Did you know that? The internet was really an information exchange mechanism, but Mark Zuckerberg disrupted that and essentially, in creating Facebook, gave to us social media. And Amazon, you know, it used to be that you go to a local store and you buy some clothes, right? You try them on, you buy some clothes. Now you go to a local store, you touch those clothes, you touch the goods, you go home and order it online, right? <laughs> Amazon completely changed the way we shop. Disruptors who form disruptive companies and, and therefore are known as disruptive leaders, right? Disruptive leaders are those who are able to see around the curve. They create their own platforms. They simplify complexity and articulate nuance. Disruptive leaders say what needs to be said and they do what needs to be done before others even know something needs to be said 
or what it is that needs to be done. Disruptors. And I was reading that article back in January of 2016 when it dawned on me that our God is a disruptive God. Think about it. Our God is a disruptive God. He disrupted darkness and gave us what? Light. He disrupted the law and gave us faith. Disrupted sin and gave us salvation. Death and gave us life. Time and gave us eternity. And if God is a disruptive God, and he is, surely he expects the local church, the bride of Christ, we his people, to be disruptive as well. 20-something years ago, thank you all seven of you, uh, several years ago, (laughs) back in the mid-90s, I began to reflect upon the prayer of Jesus Christ, right? Be our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So let me ask you a question that I've been asking and trying to address in my life and ministry for the past 25 years or so. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, and I don't think you all heard me. I'm from the south now. I said if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? If God taught us to pray that what's going on up there ought to be going on down here, and we know according to Revelation 7, 9, that every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will walk, work, worship God together as one, in one bride, in one body, for all eternity, and that is heaven, and he taught us to pray that what's going on up there ought to be going on down here. And if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? Unlike The Rock, and it may surprise you to know, but 86.3% of churches in this country are segregated by race, class, and culture. 86.3% of churches in this country fail to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. Surely it breaks the heart of God that so many churches, the vast majority of churches in this country are segregated by race, class, and culture, and that little has changed in the now more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. It should not be so. But more than bemoaning this from an emotional standpoint, the systemic segregation of the American church is inhibiting today our ability to advance a credible and compelling gospel of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, and cynical society. My good friend Dave Olson with the Evangelical Covenant Church uh, did a study back in uh, around 2008, 2009. He did a study of more than 200,000 churches in this country. And he found this, that among other things, he found this, that between 1990 and 2009, in a 20-year period of American history, when more than 56 million people were added to the roles of this nation, do you know how many people became active members of a local church? In a 20-year span, more than, you have already 300 million or so, another 56 million get added to the roles of uh, America, to our nation, And in that 20-year period, when 56 new people go on the rolls of America, do you know how many people became active members of a local church? 
446,540 people, less than 1%. Look at me. No one is listening. No one is listening. And I contend the primary reason that no one is listening is because the American church preaches a gospel of God's love for all people from otherwise systemically segregated pulpits and pews. And that undermines the credibility of our witness. So rather than be disruptive, the American church, which is made up of Christians, believers, like you and me, right? Rather than be a disruptive force to advance the common good, we in fact have been disrupted. Disrupted. Due to the systemic segregation of the American church, we have virtually no credibility as a congregation of faith when it comes to discussing matters of race, class, and culture in a society divided by socio-political issues largely affected by race, class, and culture. Again, unlike The Rock, most churches, virtually no credibility when it comes to addressing systemic issues of race, class, and culture in this society. Therefore, our words are often spoken too late, only after problematic situations of real or perceived injustice arise to receive widespread attention. Thus, our words as a church and as a people ring hollow. They ring inauthentic. They ring self-serving, whether we speak them from the pulpit, on the streets, or through social media. And is this not what it means to have become as noisy gongs and clanging cymbals? Indeed, this should be in this season of American life, in a season of painful polarization, division over race, class, and culture, this should be the church's finest hour. This should be our finest hour. This painfully polarized, divided society should see us believers walking, working, and worshiping God together as one beyond the distinctions of this world that so often and otherwise divide. They should see us living beyond tolerance in agape love for one another so as to lift up the name of Jesus and draw all people unto himself. They should see us uh, proclaiming a credible faith, hope, and love. They should see us advancing peace in our communities. Such is truly disruptive. Such action is truly disruptive, and thus it's expected of both the church and we, the people of God. In fact, disruption is modeled by none other than Jesus Christ. This type of disruption is modeled by none other than Jesus Christ himself, and perhaps no better explained in all of Scripture than it is by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, that's where we'll be this morning, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. The disruptive work of Jesus Christ ought to characterize the disruptive work of we, his people, and ultimately local churches throughout this country. And in writing to the diverse people at the church at Philippi, and by the way, every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was a healthy, multi-ethnic, and economically diverse church. Churches in which Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, walked, worked, and worshiped God together as one. And to this diverse community of faith, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, 
uh, and we'll begin in verse 3. He says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard one another as more important than yourselves, and do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, just to clarify, when we read Scripture in the American context, um, typically we read that verse in an individualized way, as if every verse is speaking to me, the individual. So we read this, and it says, Mark Demas, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Mark Demas, have humility and regard one another as more important than yourselves, etc. We apply it to the individual, and certainly we can do that. But we have to remember the Word of God is not written so much to the individual as it is to a collective to the community, in this case, to the community at Philippi. And so when he talks about this idea of not merely looking out for your own personal interests, he's speaking to a plural group, the collective whole. And he's saying, don't merely look out for your own personal interests as a people group, but also for the interests of other people groups, men looking out for women, the rich looking out for the poor, Jews looking out for Gentiles. This is the context of the word of God here in the book of Philippians. So how are we to do this then? How are we, as he writes, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit? How are we to have humility of mind and regard others both individually and collectively as more important than ourselves? Well, then he launches into verse five, right? Into verse five. And here in verse five, he tells us how to do this. He says very simply, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the word attitude, might take it for granted, you can look it up. An attitude reflects a settled way of thinking or feeling. It's typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. So when we talk about attitude, it's something we might think about is, is in our mind or in our heart, but it is typically reflected in behavior, in action. And Paul tells us, the church, to have this attitude both individually and collectively in us, as did Christ Jesus. This attitude that leads to behavior. Well, naturally, you want to know, right? What attitude of Christ is to be reflected in our behavior? He goes on to write this. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, and taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the attitude in which we're to have. Now, humility and obedience is there, right? Have this attitude in you, and you might think the attitude is one of humility, and it is. You might think the attitude is one of obedience, and it is. But notice here it says this, he emptied himself. Because the attitude specifically that the Apostle Paul is talking about is in relation to humility, is in relation to, to obedience, but it led to an action. And what is the action in Christ? It's that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. So what does it mean to empty yourself? In, in this case, it's of a place. It's, it's vacated by a person or the people in it. We empty ourselves when we leave one place and go to another, for instance. We vacate that place. We might say we've emptied ourselves. We move from one place 
to another. You vacated a house. You emptied yourself of belongings and moved to another location. In this context, that's what it's talking about. Christ emptied himself in humility, in obedience, but the action was to empty himself. Now, when you think about this idea of emptying, let me give you a, a theological term. In the Koine Greek in which the New Testament was written, the word is kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis. And for 2,000 years, literally going all the way back to uh, St. John of the Cross, this word kenosis, and this chapter particularly is equated with John chapter 1, the coming down of God, God becoming man, Jesus Christ becoming man, and it should be. And for 2,000 years going backward, when, when theologians have written about or speak about this kenosis, the emptying of Christ, they do it in one of two ways. First, they, they explain it as a mystery. Right, Because we know this, that, that Jesus wasn't 50% God and 50% man, right? He was 100% God, he was 100% man, and we don't quite get that, right? But the Word of God clearly teaches that, and so we don't fully know how to explain this idea of Jesus, God, becoming man, but he did, 100% God, 100% man, kenosis, he emptied himself, I guess he, he emptied himself of, of, of this, this Godship, if you will, but and it's explained in a mystery. And so the best, one, one of the ways we explain it is it's kind of like he had a God card. I mean, think about it. When he left heaven to come to earth, he didn't stop being God, did he? He didn't stop being God. I mean, you can't forgive the sins of people unless you're God. You can't raise people from the dead unless you're God, right? But he, but he didn't always play the card. You can't turn water into wine and the bread and all that, right? So it's kind of like he had a God card. And every now and then he played, he played the card. But he pretty much tried to keep it in his back pocket as much as he could, right? Remember to his mom, they don't bother me with that stuff, right? But then just like any good son he gave in, did what mom said. So it's kind of like part of it is a mystery. We know he didn't stop being God, but he didn't always play God or be God. And so he had this, it's kind of a mystery, maybe he had a God card. That's one way we explain it. Another way that this passage has been explained, not just as a mystery, uh, but it's, it's applied in the context of Christ emptying himself of his own will and exchanging his will for the will of the Father. Now, if you look this up and you Google kenosis, you'll find all the way back, 17, 1800 years, this writing tying the emptying of God or Christ emptying himself to this idea that he emptied himself of his own will and in humility and obedience embraced the will of the Father. Right? And therefore, it's an attitude in which we should have in our us and an, an example to follow. And I get that and I see that. But let me tell you, and, and man, I don't mean to change 2,000 years of theology, but I'm going to change it for you now. Because that ultimately is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's not. And to know exactly what he means when he talks about Christ emptying himself, you have to understand the Apostle Paul. You have to know him intimately. You have to know the writings and what he gave his life for and what he lived for, which is the gospel of Gentile inclusion. That salvation, the local church, and the coming kingdom of God is not just for one people group, it's for all people groups. It's not just for those who can afford it, it's for those who have no means to afford it. It's not just for men, it's for women. And this is radical teaching at the time of Christ. And when you know this is the life beat, the heart of the Apostle Paul, then you can see what really is going on and what literally has been missed, in my opinion, for 1,800, 1,900 years. What is it that Christ emptied himself in the kenosis, in coming down? He didn't stop being God, 
It's not that he had to play a God card. He was always God. And yes, humility and obedience, but think about it. He is God. His will was never different than the Father's. How is it that Christ would exchange his will for the will of the Father when he himself is one with the Father? He never had a different will. You with me? I was in too deep at 8 o'clock, is it? Come on, help me out. Are you with me? I'm making a logical argument here, right? All right. So that, that really can't be it. He never had a different will to exchange. I've got a different will. You see what I'm saying? As a sinner, I, I got a different will. There's things I want to do. There's things I want to say. There's things I want to experience. And they go directly contrary to the will of God. I guess I'm the only one in the room. So when I talked about this idea of being saved, yes, I was saved in a moment. But daily, I've got to embrace the will of the Father. I've got to exchange in humility and obedience my will to put on the will of God. And, and a lot of days I get it right and some days I don't. But that's why we have God. Amen. So that can't be it. That's my point. What is it? What is it? Y'all ready? Here it is. What he exchanged, what he emptied himself of was power, position, and privilege. What he exchanged, what he emptied himself of was power. Think about it. He's omnipotent. He's got all power. You see what I'm saying? Privilege, throw yourself off the mountain and the angels will catch you. Privilege, right? Position, seated at the right hand of God the Father. He had, there's no greater power, no greater position, no greater privilege in all the planet and all the universe than Jesus himself had. And what did he empty himself of? It wasn't of being God because he was God. It wasn't exchanging his will for the Father's because it was one in the first place. He emptied himself of the power, position, and privilege that went ahead with being God. And we are to have this attitude in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, when I was a, a kid, uh, we played a game. I grew up in San Francisco, actually, in Alameda in the Bay. And and uh, we played a game called King of the Hill. Did any of y'all old enough to remember that game? Yeah, even some young guys are saying, they're shaking their head. Maybe they still play it. So, you know, you had the little schoolyard, little berm, little hill, whatever, and you scramble up, and all the little people, little guys and girls try to scramble up, and you get to the top of the hill, and, and you get to be King of the Hill because you're on top. And how do you stay King of the Hill? You got to push everybody else down. You got to keep them down to keep your power, to keep your position, to keep your privilege. You got to push them down. Jesus did not come to be King of the hill. He came to be king of the world. King of the world. And he disrupted his own life and he disrupted the planet in order to do that, right? He emptied himself of power, position, and privilege. And rather than stay upon the hill, see, he didn't regard power, position, and privilege as something he was going to keep to himself. I'm going to stay up on the hill and keep everybody else down so I have power, position, and privilege. No, what he did is he emptied himself of that and he came down. You see what I'm saying? And he came down to us. We who had zero power, zero position, and zero privilege in the heavenly places. And he came down to give us that. To leverage it. To give us that, again, in the heavenly places. Not to play king of the hill, but to be king of the world. And that's why we are called now, in our salvation, joint heirs with Jesus. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, you are blessed, adopted, redeemed, chosen, forgiven. Uh, uh, all these blessings that are true for you now 
you have an inheritance, an eternal one, sealed with a pledge by the Holy Spirit that will never fade away. You see, you didn't have any of that before Jesus came. He had it all. But he came down to give it to those of us who didn't have. And now we are joint heirs. Now we have an inheritance. We have power, position, and privilege in the heavenly places. I know Miles, I'm, I remember walking through this building before he built it. You know, they got the Holy of Holies down here, right? You, you can walk right on up because Jesus came down to give you access. You swipe your VIP card, man. Enter the Holy of Holies. You have power, position, and privilege now. We have it in Christ Jesus, but we didn't have it, and we would never have had it unless he came down. This is what he emptied himself of, and this is the attitude and the action that we're to have in us. Think about it. Today in this country, every single demographic group in this country is fighting for one of two things, either to attain power, position, and privilege because they don't have it, or to what? Maintain the power, position, and privilege that they do have. Am I right? Every demographic group in this country is fighting either to attain or to maintain power, position, and privilege today. But rather, as Jesus demonstrated and Paul explains, the way to such things is actually to let them go. The way you get power, position, and privilege is let it go. It's disruptive. You see what I'm saying? You think you've got to fight to get it. You think you've got to fight to maintain it. Jesus modeled and tells us, let it go. Leverage it. Whatever measure of power, position, and privilege in this life that, that has been afforded to you or that in somehow you have otherwise achieved. Because in America, we all have, most of us have some measure. It's not either you have power, position, privilege, or you don't. It's like a continuum, right? I was raised in a single-parent home, working-class mother selling Avon on the streets at seven. I got a Hispanic last name, even though I'm white, Italian, and Russian Jew, because I was born out of wedlock, latchkey kid before uh, the term was even coined. I didn't grow up with economic privilege, but I also think if I had been born African-American in this country, in my circumstance, where would I be? So I didn't have as much privilege as a white man that some of my other friends had with dads and, and moms. You see what I'm saying? But I, was, but I was further along than others. And I started out that way. You see what I'm saying? So it's not either you have it or you don't. Most of us have some measure. I got African-American, Asian friends. They went to Harvard. I went to Mesa Community College, all right? You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, like, there's this continuum. And, and here's the point. Whatever measure of power, position, and privilege this life has afforded you or that you have otherwise achieved, God says, let it go. Amen. Give it away to others who don't have it. Leverage it to advance the common good. That's disruptive. My good friend and mentor, Dr. John Perkins, taught me years ago, it's not so much about teaching others how to fish or, or giving a person a fish, right? Or teaching others how to fish. You know what it's ultimately about? Helping others own the pond. Did you catch that? We talk about, hey, let's, let's, let's give away some free, hey, and we do in our church, right? We help others learn how to fish for themselves, and all that's well and good, but the ultimate aim is to help those who don't own the pond, help them own it. Use your power, your position, your privilege, leverage it, let it go, come down, and help others come up the hill rather than keep them down. Rather than keep them down. You know, I was... Uh, 
I was teaching this to a group of bankers. I, I did a diversity training type thing in Arkansas a couple of years ago. Talk about white power and privilege, right? I mean, there's 45 bankers in this room, seven weeks, two hours a week. We talked about diversity and, uh, uh, and all these different issues. And I was sharing this. In the South, you can get away with that, talking about the Bible and corporate meetings and stuff, right? So I was sharing a little bit about Philippians 2 and some of this understanding. And at the break, one of the white bankers came up to me and, and he said, man, that, that's tough to swallow. He said, because if I help others own the pond, my pond will shrink. If I help others own the pond, my pond will shrink. And I'd never thought about it from that angle before. And I felt like the Spirit of God, you ever have that moment where you feel like, boom, the Spirit of God just came in your mind and thought. And instantly I said to him, well, that may be true. Your pond may shrink. But think about it this way. Now you'll have two ponds sufficient. You see what I'm saying? If I have, if I own the pond, but I help someone else own the pond, hey, maybe my pond shrinks a little bit, but that's a friend for life, man. Hey, my pond, I'm not, not doing well. The fish aren't biting it. Can't, hey, John, can I come over here? Oh, man, come on over. Bring your family. You see what I'm saying? You're not losing anything. You're gaining. What should a prophet a man, right? I mean, Jesus teaches this. It's disruptive because it's, it goes against everything we otherwise think or want to attain or to maintain. Jesus says leverage power, leverage position, leverage privilege, and help others own the pond. That's disruptive. And so Paul goes on to write, for this reason also, in verses 9 through 11, God highly exalted him. I want you to think about it. As if Jesus wasn't highly exalted enough. You see what I'm saying? Paul goes on to say because he had this attitude, because it led to this action of him coming down and, and giving away power, position, and privilege and bringing those who didn't have it up the hill, so to speak, helping us own the pond in the heavenly place. It says because he did this, his name is highly exalted. And bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, you want power, position, and privilege in life, leverage it, you're going to get it. And you're going to get it even more than you have it. It's disruptive. But we typically don't think like that. So what's a takeaway in terms of a disruptive thought? Because you can't have disruptive action without disruptive thought. Take a look on the screen. Here's a disruptive thought, a take home for you as it were. To attain or to maintain power, position, and privilege in whatever measure this life you've been afforded or achieved in this life, you must learn to give it away. In humility and obedience, give it away. Help others up the hill. And that disruptive thought then leads to a disruptive action, which ultimately is this, humility and obedience to the will of the Spirit as over and against pride and independence to the will of your flesh. Disruptive thinking changes our action. And we surrender in humility and obedience our will to the will of the Father. We help others up the hill, not keep them down. And ultimately, this is what it means to be a peacemaker. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Did you think about this? In the Beatitudes, this is the only, in all the Beatitudes, let me say it this way, in all of the Beatitudes, in every Beatitude, you get something for what you do. Blessed are those who mourn, they get what? Comforted. 
Blessed are the meek. What do they get? They inherit the earth. There's only one beatitude that you don't get something for what you do. You're identified with someone for what you do. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. It's an identity thing. And I'm sure you know like me, this society needs peace. It needs to see the Prince of Peace lifted up amongst the diverse body of believers on earth as it is in heaven to find their way to faith, hope, and love, the gospel of God that we love. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and the daughters of God. So Paul writes elsewhere in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, if possible then, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. All people, men and women, right? Insofar as it depends on you. You know, we've talked a little bit about the structure of the American church, but now speaking to you, to me as individuals, Paul writes, insofar as you have opportunity, as it depends upon you in each and every circumstance, insofar as you have opportunity and it depends on you, be at peace with all people. How then shall we live? Whether at home and with our family, with those that disagree with you, with those who are acting disagreeable, right? How are we to advocate for peace? Here's just a few thoughts to finish up. Seven ways to advocate, whether at home, with family, on the streets, on social media particularly, right? How can we represent Christ well? How can we bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven? Here's just seven ways to be a peacemaker, right? First, avoid dogmatic statements. You know, one thing I've learned in working with diverse peoples for 25 years, my way is just a way of thinking. Did you know that? It's not necessarily the way of thinking. Avoid dogmatic statements. Secondly, learn to ask good questions. Instead of talking, ask good questions. Learn to listen, right? Assume the best in others. Assume the best in others. In our country, we assume the worst. You read something on social media, and instantly our mind jumps to assume the worst. Begin from a point where you assume the best in others. You know, in my church, I've got uh, a state senator. She's African-American, single woman. She's been a part of our church for 11 years. She, in terms of her position, not in terms of her personality, she's the Nancy Pelosi of the state of Arkansas. But she goes to church and worships right alongside a big white man with a handlebar mustache named Ralph Hudson. And he's number two in labor in the, in the state of Arkansas, appointed by Asa Hutchinson, who used to run the NRA. I got a staunch Republican and a staunch Democrat, and our elder chairman is Puerto Rican, and he's a social security judge, right? So we cover all the bases in our church, but you know what? We put them on a stage every now. How do you all get along? How is it that you can walk, work, worship God? You've got such polarizing opinions and positions. You know what they say about one another? They say because we know one another. We worship together. We know that we never doubt each other's motives. We may doubt the way we're going to try to advance the common good, Joyce has a way that she thinks, I have a way, but we never doubt one another's motives. And that keeps them not only in the game, but in the church and representing Christ well. Assume the best of others. Fourth, advance faith, not fear. We're supposed to be a people of faith, not fear. Advance it. Fifth, always pause before you speak. Boy, you ever hit the button send and wish you could take it right back? Always pause before you speak. Six, acknowledge complexities. You know, complex issues are complex for a reason. There's no simple answer. So just acknowledge the complexities of our discussion in society. And lastly, add balance. Always seek to add balance to a discussion. 
If someone's very far here, add a little bit of this. If someone's here, because ultimately this is what Christ did. See, he held both sides in tension so that he could be lifted up and draw all people into himself. You know, the Bible is filled with examples of disruptors. Abram, who set aside afforded rights and personal concerns for the greater good. Joseph, who refused to take advantage of power and position for personal gain. Esther, who leveraged position and privilege, risked her life to save her people. And the Bible goes on to tell us how to follow in their footsteps. Solomon says, diffuse anger with a gentle reply. Paul says, speak the truth in love. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In and through all such ways and means, then, we can not only have but apply the attitude in us which was also in Christ Jesus. We can be disruptive leaders and disruptive churches. We can forge the way of peace as peacemakers and ultimately advance a credible gospel in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, and cynical society. Let us pray. To those at the other campuses or even watching online, thanks so much for being here and especially guests that are with us today. And Father, as we pray in light of this message, in light of the teaching of the Apostle Paul, the example of Christ, give us the faith, the courage, the willingness to sacrifice in whatever measure we have it, power, position, and privilege to help others own the pond, ultimately to find their way to you by presenting, again, a credible message and witness of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse society. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and thanks so much for having me today at The Rock.